Hi, this is Jim Colton, and this is the Driven Golf Podcast. In this episode, we first chat with Will Smith, the co-founder of National Links Trust, a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C. The NLT operates the three municipal courses in our nation's capital, while also championing for muni golf courses across the country. I think you'll see Will's passion for golf and visionary thinking is truly leaving a lasting impact on our great game and its surrounding communities. In Angle of Attack, Andrew and I talk about the importance of tracking stats in golf development. I share what I've set up with my driven golf athletes and how we use that information to create focused practice plans to optimize performance. This episode is brought to you by Flagbag Golf Company. Flagbag makes custom golf bags and accessories using repurposed old golf flags. It's November and the holidays are right around the corner. A Flagbag golf bag is a perfect gift for that passionate golfer in your life. Every bag is truly a one of one. Go to flagbaggolfco.com for more information and mention Driven Golf to receive a free custom head cover with the purchase of one of their golf bags. With that, here's episode four with Will Smith. All right, Will Smith, welcome to the Driven Golf Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jim. Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to, to be on here with you. Yeah, I mean, Will and I, man, we go back, I mean, 12, 15 years, I think, just running in different circles of the golf uh, business and golf ecosystem. I think we must have first met out at Bally Neal, uh, you know, you as an early member and me kind of wrapping up construction out there. So, Just a little bit of background about Will. He is the co-founder of the National Links Trust, and we're going to talk quite a bit about that in this episode. I'm also a co-founder of the uh, Outpost Club, a golf society. And I think over the past 20 plus years, you've had different, quite a, a varied in, uh, background in terms of different uh, roles and responsibilities in this golf ecosystem. I think it's some, somebody who I've looked up to quite a bit just in terms of your involvement and your dedication to the game and how that really kind of motivates and fuels, I think, you day to day and everything that you do. So I, I definitely, definitely want people to learn more about you and more about your story. And I think over the course of this episode, uh, really gain an interest in all the things that you're involved with. Cause I think everything you do from my perspective is just, is just first rate. I really appreciate you saying that. And, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to have a life in golf and uh, you know, you've been an inspiration to me at times as well. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later in the pod. Yeah. So was, let's dive a little bit deeper just in terms of your golf background. So we have a, a little bit that we call uh, golf superhero, which is, if Marvel would say make a movie loosely based on your life, like what would be your origin story in terms of getting involved in the game? Like what would you describe as like your one golf superpower? And then was it sort of this crossroads moment in your life where you like the light bulb went off and you just realized that golf was going to be the thing for you? That's a lot of questions there, Jim. I'm I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to tackle them. I, I both my, grandfathers played uh and i would say that they they were the ones that introduced me to the game but it was very casual and and very sporadic you know my dad would didn't play for a long time he would take it up you know every three or four years as i was growing up and we'd go out to the executive course down at hog's neck down on the eastern shore of of maryland and you know hit it around two or three times a summer and then he wouldn't you know the next summer we wouldn't do it and it really wasn't until right before college that um, a few of my buddies and I started playing with regularity. And once we did, we all got the bug, although I, I got it, you know, <laughs> I, got, I got the worst case. And uh, I was fortunate to go to school at Yale 
Uh, and, you know, one of the first places I went to when I got there was the Yale Golf Course. Um, incredible C.B. McDonald, Seth Rayner design, uh, very different than the urban environment of, of New Haven. Uh, and I just fell in love with being out in nature uh, at a well-designed uh, golf course and um, started reading golf architecture books, was fortunate to be able to visit a couple of really good cor courses early in that sort of development and uh, just fell in love, fell in love with the game, uh, was friends with a bunch of guys on the golf team, even though I couldn't, you know, couldn't break 95 at the Yale course. And it started to become very much part of what I did and who I sort of identified as, as, a, as someone in golf or wanting to be in golf. And then the aha moment, I would say, is uh, after graduating from Yale, I went to work for Travel and Leisure Golf. We were based in Boulder, and that was a great job. It was sort of, you know, jet set poverty. You were flying around to the PGA Merchandise Show in Vegas and going to visit new course openings and all that sort of stuff while getting paid, you know, basically just above minimum wage. <laughs> uh, it was great. I loved it. And it was a great job to be just out of college, to be in Boulder. But I didn't really know what I, was, I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, I was sort of a couple of years in, I was sort of thinking, all right, well, it's time to get serious and go to law school or business school, just like, you know, you know a lot of a lot of Yale grads uh, would do in their early to mid 20s. And Colin Sheehan, who uh, probably will come up again a couple of times in this episode uh went to Yale with me and we we actually um we'd been out to Bandon Dunes in, in May of of 1999 uh, a week after it it opened and got to know Josh Lesnick and had a really good time out there uh Josh was the G opening GM at, at Bandon Dunes and we in June of 2020 we road tripped from San Francisco up to up to uh Bandon Dunes and that was when the first 13 holes of Pacific Dunes had been hydroceded and Josh took us out. We walked it. Uh, we, we were sitting on the sort of the bluff overlooking the course and and uh, had a few beers. And I just sort of there was sort of an epiphany moment for me that you know, I wanted to I wanted to be part of building great golf courses. Um, and, and so I decided at that point to get into golf architecture. Uh, and I went, ended up getting my master's in landscape architecture at the University of Georgia and worked on and off for Tom Doak. Uh, for a number of years, uh, same with with uh, worked for some for Gil Hansen, Jim Wagner, shaped the Prairie Club for Tom Lehman out in Nebraska, and um, you know I, I, I've evolved away from that life, but that was sort of really the thing that got me hooked. That, that hey, I was going to make a life in the world of golf. Yeah, that's really fantastic because I think obviously looking at your background, it's that's quite a leap. I think from. Yale graduate to landscape architecture into golf course shaper, right? And I, you know, I've known you for years, but I don't think I ever realized like the backstory uh, behind that transition. It's really just like, like you said, you got the bug really bad, and you followed your passion in a way that's that's really impacted the trajectory of, of your life in many ways, right? Yeah, and I, and I think you know, not that I'm uh, one of sit there and say, you know, <laughs> give worldly advice to young people who may be listening, but you know, it, it, you're never too old to do what you, you really want to do. Um, you know, I, I, when I graduated from Yale, I said, you know, I, I don't know anything about golf architecture, What I, you know, something that I thought about, but I was a history major at Yale. And then I was sort of in my mid twenties. And I said, I, you know, I was sitting there and was like, if, if not now, when like the don't, you know, I wouldn't want to look back 20 years later after, you know, being a, lawyer and you know grinding it out to be an associate and then potentially make a part and you know like that's not where my heart was my heart was in in golf and being able to create 
cool places for people to enjoy and, and get together and, and be a community. So I, I heard a story from your golf shaper days yeah. that somebody may have tried to kill you in your sleep. Is absolutely. that true? That's true absolutely true. True story. <laughs> to be hundred percent fair, he was fully sleepwalking, but he did place a pillow over my uh, head and hold it there. So hundred percent true. That is, uh, that's amazing. That is yeah. an amazing story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know, we've been laying sod earlier that day and I think he, you know, he, he has a tendency to sleepwalk and I, he just, yeah, he got up, put it, grabbed the pillow and put it over my face. And, you know, I, I screamed and shoved him off and, uh, he was still asleep even after that. And, yeah, uh, Brian Schneider was actually, we were, you know, this is how Tom Doak takes care of his guys. There were three of us sleeping in that room. Uh, and Schneider started shaking him and he was still asleep. So wow. Yeah. I mean, one of those cool places we, you mentioned it at the outset. Uh, and this, I think is where our lives intersect is uh Bally Neal golf club in Holyoke, Colorado, uh, which is, I think fair to say my favorite place in the world. And I know, you know, I, I guess I don't know exactly what, uh, what was your role in the construction process uh, at Bowie Neal. And, you know, I think this is a fair place for us to start because we could probably have a whole episode just on Bowie yeah. Neal. But just yeah. uh, just wanted to talk about that environment, the team that was built, that was put together, that Tom put together out there and just like the day-to-day -day creativity that came out of there. Because I just think like that's maybe the one shining example. Like Tom would admit that it's the course of, of all the Renaissance courses is considered the most fun. And I think that's probably a function of the crew that was out there day to day and how they, how they're able to bring their best selves to the workplace every day. Yeah. no, I got there late in the process. I was there for about the last five, six weeks of construction. So I think I've missed out on the majority of the hijinks, but you're absolutely right. You know, um, Kai Golby, Eric Iverson, Brian Schneider, uh, Mike McCartan, I'm missing Jonathan Reister, all really great guys. And, and they were, they just had a blast being out there and you've spent a lot of time in Holyoke, you know, there's not, there's not a whole lot to do. <laughs> so I, I, they were fully invested in, in building really, really cool stuff. And then in the off hours, you know, just like most of the projects I've been involved in, you get together and you have a beer or two and you talk about the golf course. And it, it's just sort of this really fun process um, and out there, you know, they, you know, beginning, you know, I heard stories about them building, building some of the contours on the 13th fairway to make it more fun to jump on four wheelers and stuff like that. I mean, that, that was sort of the environment is like, Hey, let's, let's have fun and, and, and let's have a great time building this thing. And, and I think it's reflected in the final product, which is, uh, yeah, just, you know, it's, it's an incredible blast to play, play that golf course. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any feature out there that you would, if you were out there today said like, Oh, I had. I had a hand in that. So like next time I'm out there and I hit in a bunker or something, I, I can curse, curse your name. Well, I was there for the last five, six weeks of, of construction, doing some finish work on fairways, really. And then the spring before the golf course opened, uh, we had hydroceded down into the, into the bunkers. Uh, we grassed all the way down in the bunkers. And that spring, I spent another sort of five, six weeks out there with a the crew. And at, at this point, it was just me um, and a bunch of sort of the, the, the maintenance folks. Uh, and we we took out the grass and edged every single bunker out there, which, you know, I, I got to know the golf course really, really well. 
and was out there on some crazy windy days and and had a lot of fun. And that was definitely a different than than before. And you know, at that point, you know, Bruce Hepner, who ran the job for Tom, uh, you know, asked me asked me to do some scrapes and some stuff like that. So I, you know, I was really just kind of uh, finishing off what what the other guys had had really built. And I, I, you know, I'd be remiss to take any credit for really anything of of note out there you know I, I can go around and be like oh that little scrape on the walkway from 16 to 17 t like yeah i did that but it's not it's not it's yeah. not anything too spectacular um yeah. yeah but i think i think one of the things that bowie neil gets right is that sort of attention to detail right all those little things like you know the bunkers even when they're from day one looking like they had been there forever and obviously they've they've changed and evolved just from the wind from from year to year, but just like that rugged look is just really like, it would look a whole lot different if you had these like really clean edges, right? It just wouldn't fit the yeah. environment. And I think, you know, we're really getting into golf dorkdom here, nerddom, <laughs> but uh, you know, w- when I was out there the first time, there was so much talk about the edges of the golf course, how the maintained turf bled into the native and really working hard in a way that I don't think 99.9% of golfers would ever notice to, to make sure that there wasn't a hard edge between the maintained and the native. And a lot of that was literally just reaching in with an excavator, just taking a couple of passes here and there. And, you know, that was, they spent a lot of time on it. And it's, the, it's exactly right. The attention to detail uh, that, again, most people will never notice. But it, it as you go through the landscape as a golfer, it makes it feel more connected and more natural. Uh, and that's, you know, that's why Tom uh, is so good. Tom's crew is so good. And Bill, Bill and Ben and Gil, those guys, those guys get those details better, uh, better than anybody else. Yeah, it is. It is super dialed. Cause I think we, we call it the clump as, as members. Like if you get just off the fairway, you have like this 50, 50 chance of it being a good lie might be a poor lie. But you you sort of earned you sort of earned yeah. that right because you've missed this like seventy yeah. yard wide fairway, right? So yeah. you know you just earn whichever you got, right? But but the nice thing is it isn't like you miss a fairway like on a U.S. Open course and it's basically a one stroke penalty. Like you can hit the hero shot from there. You might even you might even try the hero shot and end up in worse position than you started, right? So it, it brings out this element, and I think a lot of great courses have like I think a Piners number two in the old version with all the Bermuda rough versus what it is today, it offers those same sorts of shot making, like this sort of randomness of, of being in the wire grass or the sand, but maybe daring you to take a shot that you're not quite sure that you're going to pull off and you might get the reward from it, but you're taking on some risk that could end up leading to a big number. I think, I think that's really the thrill of that. I t- totally agree. Totally agree. Um, well, I didn't answer one question. It's my, oh yeah. my, a superhero and i again this is this is going to go back to bally neil and go back to you uh i would say it's my feet all right uh <laughs> i've done i've done uh you know you inspired me to to do uh the hundred hole hike and i've done a lot of them now and i've really been fortunate that my feet are i don't know they're they're they must be donkey hooves or something i can just uh i can go and go and go so I'm not a particularly good golfer. I'm not going to say any superhero that involves skill at the game of golf, but uh, being able to walk and walk long distances uh, and and play golf that that's my golf superhero. I think. Yeah. So actually, why don't we go there? Because this is a you know, perfect dovetail between Bally Neal and what you mentioned the hundred hole hike. Back in 2011, uh, I started a golf fundraiser event for a for a caddy at Bally Neal 
who was paralyzed in a skiing accident. Uh, his name was Ben Cox. He was 23 years old at the time. And I sort of had this idea, you know, I was always an avid golfer. I don't think I'd ever played more than like 54 holes in a day, but that was sort of the norm. We'd go out to Bowie and, you know, you golf all weekend. There wasn't, there isn't really anything else to do there other than golf. But some caddies actually had played a hundred holes in a day over the off season. So I, I had sort of planned my revenge and then I heard about this incident and I used it as motivation to say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try to raise some money for this young man. I'm going to try to play a 108 holes, which is six rounds of golf in a day, figuring out I'll email like you or my, you know, my, my circle of golf friends, get some pledges on a per hole basis. And honestly, if I, I thought if I raised five, $6,000, it, it'd be great. Like it'd be a meaningful impact uh, to him and his family. What happened over the course of the months leading up to it is it really sort of gained a life of its own for whatever reason. Uh, it got attention in golf media. Folks like yourself and others were were donating rounds to be auctioned off, and it really became too big to fail. So leading up to it, really didn't know how it was all going to go down, but it really had an incentive to uh, make it as successful as possible. And I, I do remember one person on Golf Club Atlas had sent me a note and he's like, there's, he's like, I'm an endurance biker. There's no way, there's no way you're going to be able to do this, you know, cause you just do the math and it's like, it doesn't seem possible. He, so he pledged extra, you know, with some bonuses if I were to achieve a certain amount. So I just sort of took that as motivation to, to A, prove him wrong, but also B, obviously raise as much money as possible for this young man. Um, so in any case, I ended up walking 155 holes that day, which is eight and a half rounds of golf, like starting at 4.40 a.m. all the way to like 8.45 p.m. Um, and Ballinio is not a flat golf course, so that's something yeah. close to 45, 50 miles. And we ended up raising $110,000. So for me, that sort of that was an awesome thing, right? I was just completely blown away by just the amount of support that we had in the golf, amongst the golf community. And then that off-season... People would ask me, like, are you going to do it again? You know, uh, how do you top that? I just had this thought that, well, instead of me, just one person doing one event for one cause, like, what if you just created a platform that allowed anybody to raise money for a charity that they felt strongly about? And that that became a hundred hole hike, started a, a charitable foundation and, and managed that for a number of years. And I've done probably a dozen of them. Of them. Uh, I don't manage it actively anymore, but it's sort of taken a life of its own. I know that we'll talk about your Outpost Foundation, and I know that's been a big part of it as well. But you've you've been very supportive early on. I've done a number of them. You're still doing them today. I know Youth on Course has sort of taken it as, as sort of its main uh, fundraising vehicle. And I actually just this past week, I saw that Michael Block, uh, Blocky is doing one in California in a couple of weeks. So for me, it's sort of like seeing this whole thing come full circle. And I think the last time I tried to do the math, I believe it's raised uh, over six and a half million dollars for different charitable organizations, you know, over the last 12 years, just out of a grassroots, you know, effort. Like I said, I thought I'd raise a few thousand dollars and, you know, pat myself on the back and feel great about it. But yeah, so your, your feet are holding up better than mine because I, I did, try, I tried to do four in a two week period uh, when I turned 40 10 years ago and I basically I, I've lost a step. <laughs> so yeah, my, I, my ankles are wrecked. I don't think I've ever done one more than one a year, but I've been pretty consistent uh, doing them since 2012. 
uh, with the exception, I think, of, of 2020. And it really, you really were an inspiration. What you did uh, that first year at Ballydale, and then con- then the decision to kind of grow it into something else uh, really was inspiring. And, and you know, I think we did it I, with the Outpost Foundation. I think um, or Outpost Club, and then Outpost Foundation. I think we did the our first one was 2012, and you know, we we at one point I think had 20 different people doing it at, at one event and raising money for all different types of charities. And, uh, you know, that, that was incredible. And then since, uh, you know, we'll get into national link trust in a little bit, um, the last three years, Mike McCartan, my co-founder and I have done it. And then this year we opened it up for other people, in the DC community to do it. And we had 32 golfers out at East Potomac, uh, this past June, uh, raising money. And I think uh, total we made, we raised $150,000 for NLT. Uh, so, it's an incredible thing you started and you should be really, really proud of it. And uh, it's been a big part of my life the last decade. And, and it's, it's really nice when you reach out to, to your friends and family and, and they come back and show their support for you and what you're doing. Uh, it's a nice, it's sort of a nice annual check-in and uh, you know, it's just, it's meant a lot to me and I really thank you for, for getting it all. I'm going to say this on record when you do it next summer, I'm, I'm coming out to caddy. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I've caddied, I've, you know, I've done probably a dozen of them. I've caddied for about three or four other others as well. Uh, so yeah, well, so you, have to day. you can just, you know, you can come in and, you know, do 36 holes and <laughs> be, out be out there for like three hours, you know, that'd be great. But there, but there is this bigger theme there and you, you mentioned it, but I think the one thing that I learned through this process is you can have an off the wall, big idea. And if you have this vision and when it's combined with passion, people will rally behind you. And I, like, I've taken that mindset into my career and, and just how I think about day-to-day stuff in just terms of like, yeah, what's, like, why not? There's sort of this why not uh, possibility. Like, why not start this charity? Why, why couldn't I walk 100 holes in a day? It's given me a new perspective just on the game of golf and just how great the golf community is, but just also just like this sort of visionary thinking in terms of thinking about these big ideas, like, like pushing the envelope and just thinking about what's possible. And I think, I think of you as a big idea guy as well. And I think you've got quite a bit of track record as well. I mean, it's it's probably a great segue into national links trust because I think you and, and your co-founder, Mike McCartan, who you mentioned earlier, you really had this big idea, which is like to, you know, to basically take over or, or renovate or repair these uh, municipal golf courses in Washington, D.C. And maybe even like the bigger picture of like the ramifications to municipal golf courses and their importance in the golf uh, industry at large. How did that all come together? And like, how did it get the momentum necessary to actually become a real thing? Yeah, I mean, look, I think a little bit like your story about the hundred hole hike. You know, it starts out as trying to do something small, right? Maybe not small, but just something that's that's focused and personal. And then uh, you get encouragement, and it gets a little bit of life of its own, and 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 you never know what you're going to get, right? Mike McCartan uh, again worked at the on the crew at Bally Neal, worked for Tom Doak uh, on and off. We met at the University of Georgia when we both got our masters in landscape architecture there. Um, back in, I think, 2004, maybe. And Mike ended up writing his his master's thesis on East Potomac 
golf course. He grew up there playing. His dad would used to take him out. Mike would sit behind his dad while his dad hit balls. And then eventually his dad would let him hit some balls. And it's where he, he grew up, grew and fell in love with the game. And so when he went to write his, his uh, master's thesis, he wanted to write about East Potomac and how, you know, it, it could be this uh, blank slate for what municipal golf can and should be in America. And he, he started to do the research on, on the history of East Potomac. And he found out that originally that it was, it was a reversible Walter Travis golf course, that it wasn't just this bank slate. It had actually had this incredible history. And uh, his, his thesis sort of took on a life of its own a little bit. And it, it, I think it's probably the most read master's thesis in the history of the University of Georgia. It's amazing. <laughs> how many people I talked to through this It's like, I, yeah, I read Mike's thesis and I'm just like, wow. You know, the, the, the people, the library and whoever looks at these things must be like, why is there this spike for this random golf course uh, thesis? But so Mike already sort of stayed on top of about what the going on, going ons were, you know, the, these courses have had decades of deferred maintenance here in DC. Uh, and, and at some point the park service decided national, all three golf courses in DC are, are on national park service land. The park service uh, determined that they needed to do something different. And so I guess it was back in 2016 or 17, we started hearing rumblings that, that they might, uh, Mike started hearing rumblings that they might do something uh, like a long-term lease. And we were concerned because over the years, you hear these these rumors about different organizations that that want to fundamentally change the these these places and turn them into something that we didn't believe they should be, which would be sort of a high end amenity for uh, the wealthy people of Washington D.C. or or lobbyists or high end tourists. Sure, that might be the best business case, but not what we believe that our community and and city needs. And so we were. Mike had his, his ears to the ground and uh, to make sure that if, if anything were to happen, that we could at least have some sort of say in it. And honestly, we sort of started National Links Trust as, as maybe, you know, we were just maybe going to start a social media account and talk about the histories of these places so that people understood what they were. And uh, Mike actually came and talked at, at the winter meeting of the Outpost Club, I think in 2019, and gave a talk about the history of golf in D.C. And there were people all around the room. These are golf fanatics from all across the country. And I remember someone interrupted and said, well, you're telling me there was a reversible Walter Travis golf course in the middle of Washington, D.C.? And, and, and then so many people have started their, their lives and their, their past in the world of golf through municipal golf that even this, this room, which was, you know, again, golf, high golf IQ, g- golf uh, nerds, and, uh, but uh, high end, right? It, it, these people are playing at private courses. A lot of these people started their, their their golf path at municipal golf courses, and the the amount of interest there was not just from people who were in the from the D.C. area, but from all across the country. That was sort of a light bulb moment for me, saying like, "Hey, there there needs to be someone out there advocating for municipal golf." And you know, I love the USGA and I love the PGA of America, but they have so many other things in their in their orbit that they need to concentrate on. That I really do believe we really feel that there should be a. a a group that advocates for municipal golf. And so you combine that sort of aha moment with the fact that the park service did end up going through and uh, issuing an RFP for, for, to manage and rehabilitate the three municipal courses, three public golf courses in Washington, DC, we realized that, that there was this opportunity, um, not even an opportunity, sort of a mandate really to kind of do it, uh, to at least, at least get involved. And so we actually approached another group who had been working on the project for a while and said, Hey, like, 
you guys are DC, really experts in DC and how getting things done. And we, we know golf. Um, this is what we've done for a living. We have access to some of the best people in the game, best minds in the game, like Gil Hans and Tom Doak and Mike Kaiser and, and said, you know, can we, can we, uh, let, let's figure out a way to work together. And I, you know, I don't think they, they didn't take us particularly seriously, uh, again, because I think they just didn't have that, that golf knowledge. And, and so we decided if we wanted to make sure that the right thing happened at these facilities, we couldn't just sort of post on social media and tell the histories that we actually needed to roll up our sleeves and, and respond to the RFP. And so that was, uh, the fall, they, they issued the RFP in July of 2019. It was originally due the day before Thanksgiving of, of 2019. Luckily for us, uh, they extended it to February 28th, uh, 2020, and we worked our butts off in, uh, in February to get this RFP done, and we handed it in uh, the last day of February, and obviously two weeks later, the, the world changed, and we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if they were going to continue sort of the process. Uh, fortunately for us, they had, they'd already convened the, the jury, uh, if you want to call it that, the, the selection panel to review the applications, uh, I think, like the first week of March. So they had sort of already made their decision when when the pandemic really, really hit. And we got word in June that they had selected us to negotiate the lease. Uh, we negotiated the lease that summer and took over the operations of the golf course in uh, October October 5th, 2020. And uh, now we've been working for the last three years to to get our first project in the dirt at Rock Creek. And we're, we're, we're optimistic that we're, we're really at the end of the the compliance process, the permitting process, and we hope to get going in uh, this winter. That the pandemic has probably done more for the golf industry than any other industry, right? Just the boom that we've seen in rounds played and courses just being jam-packed is, is probably the most social distance-friendly activity around, and people were discovering that for the, probably for the first time or rediscovering that you know, during the pandemic, yeah. right? And, and just all the other uh, associated benefits of just being outdoors and getting exercise and, and just the community when they're at that point in time, there was very little, uh, social interaction. So yeah, it's just awesome that that all, that all came together in your favor. Well, yeah, no, it's been, uh, we're very fortunate, you know, these courses have done fine financially, uh, over the years. Um, but they're doing, they're doing pretty darn well now. Uh, and that the numbers are definitely up from pre pandemic levels. Um, they've stayed, they've stayed high, I, you know, I, I think, uh, which is really great, right? I mean, we're all here because we love golf and uh, have a passion for it and have fallen in love with it and devoted our lives in many ways to the game. Um, but to see other people, new people, different people coming out, enjoying, enjoying it, being outside with their friends and their family, finding community at these places and then sticking with it and coming back week after week it's it's really special and uh it's it's neat for me to be able to see it from a different side which is which is sort of the operator side a little bit uh it's been it's been a great three three plus years now i do want to talk a little bit more about the golf courses so you mentioned the walter travis course east potomac which i think what opened about 100 years ago now 19 yeah the, the second the we're celebrating the centennial year there's been golf played there longer but the the first full 18 opened a uh, hundred years ago, and they had the 1923 U.S. Pub Links, which was the second U.S. Pub Links ever uh, was there, uh, and so we're ce we're celebrating the centennial of that, and also the the 18 holes being open. And at one point, I think I have it. If I, I think at one point there were 54 holes there. Um, oh, wow. It's been cut back, and now there's there's uh, 18 
sort of the regulation blue course, which is the Travis course, uh, although there's not there's that's basically been wiped off the face of the earth. And then there's a there's the white course, which is an executive course, and then the red, which is a, a part three course. Um, and and we you know Tom Doak has signed on to to restore the reversible Walter Travis course. The Park Service, I, I will never forget. In the Park Service did a lot of research into the history of these golf courses. I mean, I think Mike, if Mike and I knew the park service was going to go into this much research, we might not have actually ever engaged because we, we didn't think that they cared about the history of these things as nearly as much as we did. And they, they issue these, the documents along with the, the RFP and the, there's a CLR cultural landscape report. And I remember reading the recommendation from the park service, which said that they, they recommended that the reversible Walter trap, the, the, Restore the blue course and 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 explore the possibility of having it be reversible. And I, I just thought there's no way that they would ever you know think about having it go back to reversible. But sure enough, that's their recommendation. And so you know we're 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 going to do everything we can to do that. And then the the well we have to move the driving range, uh, right? That's that's a really incredible place. It's 100 stalls and is always busy. Uh, we're going to have to move that to to be able to restore the blue course in its proper footprint. And then that'll rejigger the white course, and the and the red course gets a little bit uh, truncated because the blue course goes into it a little bit. But still going to be, you know, thirty six holes of golf, and uh, you know, some of the lines off the tee on on all the courses are are the Washington Monument, which is pretty special. <laughs> wow. You got you got Reagan Airport on one side, uh, you've got uh, helicopters going up and down the other side, including Marine One. It, it's a it's a really cool, <laughs> really cool place. One side's the Potomac River, the other is the Washington Channel, so. We've opened up a lot of the views so you can actually see that you're on an island and look out of the water. It's it's a cool place. It's a cool place right now. And uh, it's going to be even better once we eventually get to it. Yeah, I don't I, I may have told you this, but my my oldest son, Jordan, uh, shout out to Jordan. He's uh, he's a current student at George Washington University. So he's in D.C. Uh, he's also a history major. So you and he would probably get along really well. Uh, but he is uh, a non golfer. But I mentioned to him that I was having this conversation with you and I said, hey, you know, maybe you should bring your friends out to one of these three courses. And uh, he hasn't he hasn't played golf in a while, but I think he would probably beat his friends. He had a pretty nice swing back in the day, and he sort of uh, moved on nice. to other interests. But yeah, I just think like well, that it, opportunity to bring community together, maybe people that wouldn't even normally think about golf. It's like, hey, this is like a safe environment to come explore the game. Absolutely, and and one of the things that exists at. Uh, East Potomac today that we want to make sure is is replicated at at all three courses. Eventually, are, is sort of this pathway to the game. You start with a driving range, and then you have a, a a next step up, like a par three course at Langston. We want to do a kids course at Rock Creek. We're proposing a, a par three course, and then sort of a more regulation length. So you you kind of can dip your toes in it, get a little bit of com- more comfortable, work your way up into the regulation course. And I think you know I think a lot of us probably did something similar. Uh, and I think it's really important to be able to provide that at these affordable and accessible facilities. And one more note on East Potomac is, and maybe this is for your son, We, it, the oldest uh, continually operated uh, mini golf course is there. Oh, wow. Uh, it is, it, I got to admit, it's pretty run down right now, but we are uh, are going to be putting a, a, a good deal of money into it this spring, uh, upcoming spring. And so hopefully, certainly by this time or this next fall, It'll be sort of restored to its, its its prior glory. There used to be cutouts of the monuments that you'd play through and stuff like that. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, so that's going to be cool. And, you know, I think that'll be a great opportunity for, for college kids who aren't golfers to come out and enjoy the, the great the great place there. So. All right, that's cool. 
And then you mentioned Rock Creek. Now that that was a William Flynn design. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Correct. It's a William Flynn design. We are currently in the environmental assessment comment period, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But again, our, our plan there is to introduce a driving range. There's not, um, you know, now that we've operated these golf courses for three years, the, the driving range is an important driver of revenue that allows uh, a lot of other programming and activities to take place. So we think it's very important to introduce the driving range and it is that first step into the game. So uh, we're going to introduce a driving range or our plan is to introduce a driving range, uh, a par three course. and. To rest- working with Gil Hans, uh, who's donating his time like Tom is, to restore nine holes of sort of the original Flynn design using the original corridors and green sites, uh, kind of taking a little mix of some of the holes that were on the front nine and some of the holes were on the back nine. And then and a few of the holes that were on the back nine that we're not using, we're going to put in a, a par three course, or our hope is to put in a par three course. And some of the other holes, which we're completely not going to, we're going to put in, uh, I think it's uh, eight acres of pollinator meadows to to provide habitat for things like the monarch butterfly. And uh, there'll, be, there'll be walking trails uh, throughout the golf course so that people who aren't golfers can enjoy the site. And, you know, much like uh, we, we hope walkers and hikers and golfers can, can uh, share, share the space uh, much like they do oftentimes in, in the UK. So, Just take a step back for listeners or maybe not golf course architecture nerds for us. So William Flynn, just for backdrop, he designed Shinnecock. Shinnecock Hills, uh, also Cherry Hills, where they just had the U.S. Amateur, amongst others. Uh, Walter Travis, but I've actually never played a Walter Travis course, and I'm, I'm very eager to dig in. But he would have been Garden City, uh, Hollywood, a lot of courses on the East Coast. And, and then you mentioned reversible course. That, sometimes that's a hard thing for folks to really wrap their minds around, uh, because basically a lot of golf courses, you it'd be physically impossible to, to play it in reverse. But if you think about just playing like the second hole, you're going down from the second tee to the second fairway. When you get to, or you get to the second green, just look backwards and think like, okay, if I had to play this hole back to the first green, what would that look like? Right. And that doesn't work on a lot of sites. It, it works generally on flatter sites, you know, and I think it takes a certain level of genius in order to figure out how, how to make that work as a golf course uh, designer. So obviously Travis had that figured out. Uh, Tom Doak had built the course obviously in Northern Michigan. That a lot of people are aware of called the loop, which is probably the, the most telling example of that, just the ability to even conceive of that. Like, you know, like I've, I've tried to toy around with golf course routings and, and just get a further appreciation of that. I really don't think I could design a reversible golf course. So it takes a certain level of, of, uh, of intelligence and genius to be able to pull that off. And I think, was was the old course in St. Andrews? I know they play that reversible. They had played it reversible back in history, and they, they yeah. still do it. But was that like an inspiration for Travis during that evolution? I think so. I, uh, I think so. At, at East Potomac, it's more uniform. The, the skyline is now more uniform than it was in the past. But certainly, the spit of land that the, the golf course sits on is reminiscent of of the spit of land that that the old course sits on, and. Certainly, when you you play out towards the water and then you turn around and start playing back in, and the different p- parts of the skyline are are the lines off the tee. I, there's no doubt in my mind that that Travis sort of saw the parallels and and thought that okay, well, you know, the the old course was reversible. We, we can do that here, and I'm sure he thought this when it opened, the the amount of play uh, was absolutely massive. And if you think about reversible, 
it's actually a, a really ingenious solution to the wear and tear on a, a very busy golf course because all the the divots on one direction would be say 230 40 50 yards down the first fairway when you're playing back towards the first tee where there would be a green the the divots would actually be you know 70 yards back the other way because you're hitting over the divots and so it spreads out wear and tear on a on a busy golf course and uh, yeah, it takes a, a really smart person to figure out, you know, I didn't know this when I went there, but Westchester Country Club, which is a tr Travis, Travis design on a very, very hilly site was originally designed as reversible. And I, I can't wait to get up there wow. the next time and, and try to wrap my head around how that possibly could have worked. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, the, yeah. We haven't really touched on Langston uh, much, but I believe Langston has a very uh, rich history in terms of uh, bringing golf to the African American community. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, in basically, the golf course opened in 1939 um, after decades of lobbying by the Wake Robin and Royal uh, Golf Clubs. Uh, the Wake Robin and Royal Golf Clubs continue to exist today. They're the oldest black women's and men's golf clubs in the country, um, respectively, and uh, Blacks were not allowed to play at uh, the other two golf courses, the other golf courses in D.C. in the 20s and 30s. And they successfully lobbied at that time the Department of Interior to build a nine-hole course. And, you know, of course, the, the nine-hole course was built on a landfill. Uh, it had issues from the day, uh, conditioning issues from the day it opened. But it, it, Langston uh, has, has really been, and it expanded to 18 holes in, in the 1950s. But it really has been sort of the heart and soul of, of black golf, not just in DC, but in many ways, the country since it opened um, a, a number of uh, United Golf Association championships were held there. Pretty much every prominent black golfer uh, in history has come through there. Uh, Lee Elder um, married a, a, a woman from DC who was in the golf world, Rose Harper. He uh, managed the golf course from 1979 to 1983 and introduced the driving range. It, it's a special place. And when you sit there and listen to the the old the old guys tell the stories about you know growing up there sixties and seventies and it's a it's a really really important special place and we're honored to be stewards of the incredible legacy of 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 Langston. Yeah, I, mean, I think stewards is is the right word for this. And you you mentioned it earlier when you you mentioned bringing up the concept of what was going on at East Potomac to uh, the Outpost Club, but just like I I think for the majority of golfers out there, even, even professional golfers are, you can draw your lineage back to a municipal course, right? Like I grew, grew up playing outside of Chicago municipal golf course, Fox Valley in Batavia, Illinois and Valley green in North Aurora. You know, <laughs> I can't even, I, I can't even imagine what my life would be without golf and just like, you know, mowing lawns to save up that, whatever, 13, $14 to be able to go play those community courses with my friends and like paying $8 after four o'clock as much as you could play until, until dark. I mean, that has made a huge significant impact on, on me and my life. And you know, who knows if, if my son Luke even plays golf, if I, if I'm not a golfer. Right. And I think even, yeah. even probably the best golfers in the world, either they are directly impacted growing up through municipal golf courses or if you just if you just draw that line back through um, their lineage, that there is some linkage to muni golf, and that that really I think points to the importance of municipal golf to golf in general. Like I, I got a little bent out of shape during like the Ryder Cup, but hearing 
Patrick Cantlay or this potential controversy about him wanting to get paid. And just thinking about like the work that the PJ America and other organizations are doing at a very grassroots level, that's truly growing the game, right? If you think about what Langston yeah. has done, that you talk about some of the African-American professionals throughout the game, like we probably never would have heard of them if, if Langston didn't exist. Like they never would have made a mark on the game. And I think municipal golf courses in a lot of ways have faced like these, this sort of existential crisis from different, I think, non-golfers not really understanding what golf is about or, or thinking that it's elitist or thinking that it's, you know, a waste of green space or a waste of water. And I think they're still facing that crisis even today. Like I just saw in the news uh, in Sydney, Australia, the mayor was trying to take over a municipal golf course in order to build a park, right? So I think you probably see this on the front lines like yeah. every week, right? I mean, you're, you're sort of championing for not only the courses in D.C., but this broader champion for municipal golf courses in general and helping support them and giving them the resources that they need and just like the ammunition to kind of fight, fight the good fight. Right. That's absolutely right. Uh, we, we every year have a symposium on municipal golf where we try to bring uh, stakeholders into DC who care about affordable, accessible golf and, and uh, not just the golf, but the, the impact that you can have in a community by introducing people to the game and providing safe places for, for golfers and non-golfers alike to go to. And we're trying to collect best practices and share those as far and wide as possible. I think golf has done a, unfortunately, it's done a bad job of, of telling its true story, which isn't a, an elitist uh, game. Sure, there are elements that are elitist. There are no, there's no doubt about that. And, you know, I, it, it's, you can't deny that. But so much more of the game, uh, so much more involvement in the game is is at at the grassroots level, at the municipal golf level. This is how people people are introduced to the game, and you know, golf's got to do a better story of telling telling those stories, telling that that these places are actually beneficial to the environment. They provide habitat. They they do all of these things that are important, especially in an urban environment. And golf's got to do a better job and um, along all those fronts. But that's what we're trying to do with. National Links Trust in our sort of national outreach. Uh, we're, we're obviously very focused on and making sure that we do as good a job as we possibly can uh, at these courses in DC. And then and then be able to tell our successes and failures and try to keep track of, of uh, how these investments that we're going to make in these facilities create multiplying effects on the impact that we can have in communities. Uh, that that's sort of where where we are right now is is trying to try to set us ourselves up to to be able to tell that story far and wide. Yeah, can you maybe expound a little bit because I think you're also like forming partnerships with the with the community in different ways, like different outreach opportunities. Like there's also like this kind of vocational skills like training that like comes around golf or having a having a life and a meaningful career in the golf industry, right? Or you're trying to build inroads there as well. Yeah. Uh, so the last few summers, we've we've operated the Jack Vardman Workforce Development Program. I, for those who don't know, Jack Vardman was a, a really uh, prominent amateur golfer uh, and just an incredible gentleman who loved D.C. and gave back to his community uh, many, many times uh, over. Uh, and and uh, we we were fortunate enough to to get permission to name the program after him and honor his legacy. And what we've done is taken about 30 kids uh, from, from underserved communities around the, around Langston uh, and, and brought them in in the summer and given them internships, paid internships, 
to learn the the job skills uh, and the business of golf to to show them the different opportunities that are are there in the world of golf, whether it's hospitality or F and B or uh, on the agronomic side on the maintenance crew, and really try to expose them to a bunch of different paths into the game, and, and also teach them just you know the the dignity of work and 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 job skills and life skills. Uh, and it's been a, a very successful program. We've also partnered with WGA Evans to bring back a caddy program at Langston, which uh, used to be there back in the 70s and early 80s. And, and our hope is that at the end of, uh, I think this, we have a few applicants in for Evans Scholar, and we hope to that have a winner or two uh, this this winter, which I know you know, you know, the Evans Scholar is completely life-changing, mm-hmm. not just for an individual, but really can be for an entire family as as these kids get full rides to really great colleges. And um, so, yeah, and look, the golf, these golf courses, you know, it, it's really easy to just sort of point, put a point in and be like, oh, this is where people play golf. It's not. This is where people work. This is where people learn. This is where people create community. And this is where, you know, the, the natural environment is improved. There's there so many different things that, that golf courses do. And, and uh, you know, we, again, we got to do a better job of telling that story. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe we take that for granted because we're, we're focused on, you know, why I didn't break 80 or whatever. And we come home, you get to think about the bigger picture of it in terms of the time you spent and the people that you meet uh, through the game and just how, just how great the game is. Well, and like, look, I, I, uh, I'm not going to say that I grew up in a hard scrabble life and learned to play golf in a municipal golf course. That wouldn't be accurate. Um, but I, what I can tell you is that I have been so blessed by the game of golf that I want to introduce that game to as many people as possible. And, and, Look, if municipal golf goes away, the people that are going to play the game are, it is going to be an elitist. It's going to be a very small game that's going to shrink. And like golf's not going to go anywhere in a generation or two. But if we if we take away affordable and accessible golf and facilities, uh, the game will get small uh, eventually, a generation or two down the road. So, yeah, I, it's it's such a great game, but not the not the sport. It's about the places and the people that that it, it introduces us to. And uh, you know, I. I yeah, I get a little I get a little emotional when I no. talk about it because it really has made a huge difference in my life. Yeah, I, I obviously feel the same way. I, I was thinking about this uh, a little bit ago because I think I think golf in general, golfers are probably the most charitable sort that I can imagine. Like I, you said it early, like you've been you've been really blessed through the game and all these opportunities that it's it's created uh, and people that you've met and places you've been able to go, but. I think for everything that the game has given you, I see and observe you like giving back like 110% of that. And I know there's many others in the game that are exactly the same way. Like I'm trying to put a big dent in that as uh, giving back as much as I can as well. But I, I think the reason for that is I think golfers in general, they feel like golf is just the greatest game that man has ever invented. Right. And right. you just feel like completely blessed, you know, that the game is just has just wrapped its arms around you and yeah why wouldn't you shout from the mountaintops that like and try to give back in a way that other people can experience a lot of the same ways and like you said it's like life-changing and generationally changing uh the game just continues to do that so i think i think what you what you possess is sort of this com this really strong combination of visionary thinking in terms of big ideas and but also the ability to put them put those things into place and that, in a lot of ways, is just like rallying the troops around the cause because they feel like, okay, I know Will, 
I know he's a great guy. I know he loves golf. I know he's had a track record of success in putting things into place. I'm behind you 110%. And you're, you're willing to raise the funds or just raise the support and get people to back uh, these big ideas. And I think, you know, that winning the RFP probably doesn't happen unless you have this community and connections behind you that have been built up through all this trust and relationships that you had over, over a number of years. It couldn't have happened, right? So anyways, kudos well, to you for... I, I, don't know. I, I, I appreciate all that you said there. I do actually think the RFP was a little bit of a... Look, when, when Mike and I won the RFP, you know, we had probably four or five people, volunteers who helped us write it. Uh, we, had, we had filed our 501c3 papers. We, 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 the other group was much better connected in the world of DC. Uh, we were definitely the underdogs. But like, I, I, look, I think it's about being genuine and, and having a vision and articulating it. And look, there, there, there are other people that are passionate about making golf affordable and accessible. And, and you know, we're, with NLT, we're very, very fortunate to have a very lean team. But everyone on the team is there because it's, they believe in the mission, not because it's a job. And and they work their their butts off to every day to to further further the mission and and uh, that's that's really really for you know we're we're really fortunate. I was uh, <laughs> you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I was just imagining these meetings that you have at NLT, whether Zoom calls or face to face meetings or whatever. But I think about all the things that you've put in place since over the last three years, and it probably started with either you or or Mike or someone else on the team saying like. Hey, what what if we hosted an AJGA event or like, oh, uh, uh, East Potomac hosted the um, the 1923 Publinks. What if we reinstituted the Publinks tournament? Like, and then like I said yeah. at the outset, sort of this like, why not? Like, why couldn't we do that? Do you see like a lot of momentum, just like these big ideas, and just thinking about what's possible and how do you how do you get from that potentially like harebrained idea to actually something that's put into place? I do think there's some people on the team when I come up with when I you know say, Hey, we should host an HAG event or we should do the NLT championship. I look, we're, we're, we're understaffed and we're overworked. And so I, you know, I hate to keep adding stuff to it, but <laughs> we do these things because I think they're important to the mission. They're important to show uh, what these golf courses are capable of doing and, and what they should be in the world of golf. Like, look, we're not the best maintained golf course at East Potomac. because just, we don't have the resources uh, compared to like a high end daily fee or a high end private course. But we welcomed in uh, whatever it was, 75 of the best junior golfers in the country. And look, they shot really low scores. But they had a great time. And uh, we're very fortunate to partner with Baby Grand Golf, uh, Chuck Wilson. Um, and yeah, it was it was sort of one of those things. I can't remember if if someone I knew who's associated with the AGA sort of mentioned it to me or I reached out. to them. I honestly don't even remember uh, where it came from. But when it sort of became like an actual real possible thing, there was never a doubt that that's what we should do. Um, even though, you know, we probably, you know, we, we closed the T sheet and, you know, cost us money and all that sort of stuff. It was, it was 100% the right thing to do. And to have these kids come to our nation's capital, uh, be able to play our golf course, explore our city. It was, it was great. And, you know, I would say, you know, if you want Luke, you should bring Luke next summer. Uh, cause like, look, your son's your son. I, I'd look at the scores. He's already going deep, but you know, I think for a lot of these guys who came, uh, it probably was their first time sort of shooting in the the mid low sixties in a tournament round, and and that's that's hard to do. You know, even even on a, a pretty easy golf course, once you get to those numbers, not that I've ever been there, but you know, this is like me in the mid seventies. Uh, you know, it's it's tough. So you gotta you gotta get practiced at shooting low scores. So you know, I said bring Luke Luke next year and see if he can break sixty. 
yeah, the last uh, two rounds that I played, I was I birdied the first two holes both times, and I did not end up under par. I did not take it deep, right? You have this sort of reaction that, like, holy, holy smokes, I'm too, I'm in red numbers, you know, that doesn't last long. You make a double on the third or fourth hole, and that's that's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shout out to uh, Michael Lee, who I think won the uh, the boys' division of the first Baby Grand DC Classic. I think it was twenty six under par. He shot yeah. a sixty one in the final round, and he had uh, eight consecutive birdies. He's a he's a senior this year in high school. So, and I, I just actually just today the AJGA schedule came out for twenty twenty four, and you guys are slated for I think mid July, July sixteenth through 18th, uh, 2024. So folks, uh, look for that AJGA, uh, golfers. Definitely. We'd, we'd love, would love to have them here in DC. Yeah. I think the other thing uh, you didn't touch on is like, also, I think you've got inroads in terms of like other junior golfers that are there, just like seeing these elite junior golfers play up close. It can kind of spark this thought from other junior golfers. Like, Hey, I want to, I want to pursue that. Like, how do I start to begin that process of, of being elite like what does that take how much work does it take like just seeing what's possible you know that can also have life-changing uh, impacts as well just seeing up close yeah i mean i look I, I i this is your world it's not mine uh i was just so impressed by these kids uh how, how well they carried themselves and how professionally and how dedicated they were to to the game and and, and getting better and, and really competing it was it was eye-opening for me for sure now how about the um the public so sure, folks yeah. folks may not be aware like the u.s public was one of the big amateur events until about eight or nine years ago so it was one of those events where the winner would get into the masters the following year colt nose the golf broadcaster he had won the public i think ryan moore won it twice i think the only other recent connection that i might have is uh tyler strafacci if you he won the u.s amateur his his grandfather had won the public way back in the day and they mentioned that about 400 times during the broadcast. So, and, and one of the years that Colt Nose won was in my hometown. It was at Cantini uh, in Wheaton, Illinois. So that, that was sort of my connection with it as well. So, but it's been gone. It sort of replaced by the, by the USGA four ball uh, more recently, but the public's was really like a thriving big event. And a lot of mostly top college players would, would play it over the summer, but they didn't have a connection to a private club. Like that was sort of the, the hook, right? So, You've you've reintroduced it, I think, on the hundred hundredth anniversary of the original pub links at East Potomac, and I think it's for for mid ams. Can we talk about like how did that all come together? Was this another this sure. idea that came came to be? Yeah, I mean, look, um, I, I think yeah, I mean, it's basically pretty simple. We think that there should be a, a tournament that that caters tours for high end public golfers. Um, I, you know, we didn't want to get into that thing where college kids were coming and dominating. Uh, we also didn't want to, we really wanted it to be for municipal golfers, not, not necessarily sort of people who maybe kept a handicap at a, at a public golf course so they could play in the public. So while they did most of their practicing at the local country club, which is really hard to, to police, but you know, we're, we're doing our best on that. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the idea is that, that, you know, and we also want to try to maybe provide playing opportunities for, for people who, you know, from urban, urban municipal golf courses and people of color who might not normally play in, in some of these big mid-am events. And you know, like, this is the, this is the first year uh, we had a good start. We big th shout out to Dick sporting goods for being our title sponsor. And we, we hope to grow it. You know, we had a few qualifiers all across the country, but next year we want to have more. 
We also want to work with uh, local golf, uh, state golf associations to uh, find uh, good mid-am public players. And, and, you know, a lot of them still, a few of them still have publics, uh, state publics tournaments, try to maybe uh, get some exemptions to the winners of those. Uh, and then also look, you know, maybe the the top finisher and the and the state state mid am who plays at a public golf course would get some exemptions. And you know, we had both men's and women's division this year, and we'll obviously keep doing that. We definitely need uh, more more women to 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 play. Um, it was pretty pretty small field, but you know, we had a, a winner from Georgia and a winner from California, and uh, the guy from Georgia, you know, has played in a bunch of four balls and you know, a pretty accomplished player, and we. we one of our board members, Alan Fidel, has is, is, uh, got some great connections in the sort of mid-am circuit. And our hope would be that, that well, there's not going to be a, a master's uh, exemption at the end of this thing, that there might be some exemptions into some of the higher, higher mid-am tournaments. And, uh, and, and so I think that's it's a really good start. And we've got, we got a lot of work to do uh, from here, but uh, we're, we're excited by it. Hey, that's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, one thing I wanted to ask about is I know that Steph Curry – has really poured into the, I guess, underwritten the Howard University golf team. Do you guys have sure. any connection with that, or are they using your facilities or plans plans to use your facilities? So uh, we've we've had a number of conversations with Sam Perrier, who's the coach uh, at Howard, um, and we they they do come out and practice at our facilities uh, from time to time. Uh, we're we're certainly the most convenient for their students. Uh, to if their student athletes to come come practice. Uh, look, Sam Sam's trying to build a a uh, high caliber D one golf program, and I'll be the first person to admit that our facilities are, aren't at that level. Uh, our goal for for Langston, when it's all said and done, would be to have it be of the caliber that could host a uh, a high level college tournament, uh, both men's and women's. And um, you know, we our hope would be. And when all said and done, this is that they're not driving out to a country club in the suburbs. That they're coming to Langston or East Potomac or Rock Creek uh, every single day and practicing and hosting their tournaments uh, over over at Langston. You know, Sam's a, Sam's a great guy. He's he's super driven to to win and and compete, and uh, I really respect that. Yeah, I've been really interested to see like Steph Curry is maybe on the tail end of his NBA career, but he seems to be pouring more time and energy into golf and giving back into golf. Like he's, he's really got the bug, like you said, and, and hoping to, to share it to as many people as possible. And obviously a lot of people that maybe wouldn't be exposed to the game otherwise. Yeah. We, we you know, if you got, if you got, a, if you got Steph's number, uh, we'd love to. <laughs> well. No, but look, I, look, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, and what we're doing at Langston and, and uh, is, is right up his alley. You know, we 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 want to honor the the legacy of of black golf there, uh, while making it as easy as possible for 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 people from the under uh, from underserved communities to get introduced to the game. And I know that's what he's all about. And you know, on a recent podcast, I heard him talk about wanting to you know dabble his toes in golf architecture with the potential for maybe building his own course a la Jordan or something like that. You know, Steph, if you're listening, you're welcome to come out to to Langston, and we can we can walk the golf course and talk golf architecture and get a little little uh little practice let's uh we'd be, it would be wonderful let's just yeah. put this out here 2024 100 hole hike will smith mike mccartan steph curry let's let's just let's just put it out there love, love. Right? like we said like big ideas you gotta you gotta put them in existence like you gotta, you gotta throw it out there so steph if you're listening uh let's make it happen yeah
or that'll be, yeah, you have to do it after the NBA finals sometime, but yeah, probably in the summer would be great. He's getting the Charlie Sifford award in the middle of the NBA finals. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's right about the same time. So he could, you know, <laughs> we talked about the, the architecture, the history behind the two courses in DC with the Travis and the Flint course. There's, there's something to be said for having compelling golf course architecture at these grassroots levels. Because you could think about it, if somebody is introduced to the game of golf, there's a chance they're going to get the bug and be hooked for, for life. And there's a chance that they may just dismiss it as too difficult, contrived or whatever, and, and never set foot on a golf course again. Right. And I think, I think the architecture is really the key deciding factor in a lot of those in many ways. So, you know, I think having compelling golf at a grassroots level is a possibility. It isn't, you know, just for the Augustas of the world. You can have very compelling, architecturally significant, fun, strategic golf at these grassroots levels. And that's how you get the hooks in, in the people, like just wanting to solve it, wanting to master it, like just trying to figure out what this game is all about and all the secrets and mysteries of the game. I imagine that's what you're really trying to also promote and introduce as part of the Links Trust as well, right? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, look, Mike and I are, are golf architecture guys. Uh, we believe that compelling golf course architecture will make the game more sticky uh, to beginners, to people coming back to the game, even to, you know, to, to expert golfers. Um, and, 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 you know, it's not, you know, bang your head over with a stick, like, hey, this is architecture. You got to love it. Like, it, it's creating an environment where people it's, sort of subconsciously are, are, are engaged. Um, that they they may not realize that that bunker that they've they've been hedging away from that bunker until they realize hey like I you know if I if actually hit it over that bunker I'm gonna have a better angle in and that that again that light bulb moment like that's that's what you want you don't want necessarily to be like so prescriptive but just just give people the opportunity to to explore a golf course and not have it be the same every single time you play it and yeah it's it's compelling architecture is really important to us and we believe. Uh, is important to the long-term health of of golf, and it can't just be reserved for the people who can pay, you know, a hundred plus dollars a round to play golf. It's got to be available at a, at an affordable price. So, if if somebody is, you know, maybe they're hearing about National Links Trust the first time, they're hearing about the mission that you talked about, uh, not only in DC but just like the broader mission of supporting municipal golf course across the country, and especially in these urban centers. How would they support the work that's going on? Yeah, I imagine there's just all sorts of different tentacles and possibilities of of different partnerships, and maybe there's a muni in my town that's being underserved and and in disrepair. Like, how do you get the ball rolling? Like, what's what's the best way to to make those uh, inroads with you guys? Well, uh, obviously, go to our website nationallinkstrust.org. There's a number of ways to to reach out to us through that. You know, if anyone wants to support us, we we do it. You know, we have an annual uh, giving campaign called the Capital Club. Uh, you can find that there, and, and you know, we're we're always available. It's amazing how you know the the scenario that you laid out there at the end. It's it, it, we I would say at least weekly we do we do get some sort of incoming email from someone in a community who uh, wants to do something with their municipal golf course, wants to improve it, wants to make it more accessible, wants to make it have more of an impact in their community. And, you know, we do our best to, to share whatever resources or ideas that we have with those people. And um, so please, everyone reach out. We're, we're willing to help. 
Yeah, that's great. Well, Will, I definitely appreciate all the time. I appreciate you just fighting the good fight on behalf of the game and behalf of us, us passionate golfers. Anything that I could do to help uh, with your mission and just helping get the word out or uh, helping you raise funds for the great work that you and Mike and others are doing, I'm very happy to do that. And I'm just really excited to see just the fruition of this, which is, you know, I think, again, fueled by just passion for the game, love of the game, and just seeing the fruits of that, not only the DC community, but the municipal golf community at large. And, you know, I just thank you for all you're doing. I can't wait to see what what ideas you come up with next. Well, Jim, thank you for having me on. And again, uh, you, you've been an inspiration to me and you know, I, I, you know, I think you've been an inspiration to many, so don't, don't sell yourself short. It's, uh, it, it's, it's been an honor to talk to you tonight. All right. This is the angle of attack with Andrew Lewis. Uh, welcome back, Andrew. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I wanted to take a deeper dive on stats, golf stats, tracking stats, using them to help in player development, uh, as you know, is obviously something, a subject that I have a, a great amount of passion and drive towards. I just happen to be pretty analytical in nature, but I just wanted to get, first of all, get your perspective as a, a coach of many junior players, many of which maybe they don't have these tools or resources at their disposal. And you're trying to help them develop, obviously from a technical standpoint, but how do you incorporate stats or how do you at a very basic level, someone came to you and you asked them some very basic statistical questions that they're not tracking. Like, how do you get that started? What would you want to look at? And like, how would you start that evolution? And then we can get into the discussion about maybe some of the more advanced uh, tactics. Yeah. So where I would generally start with someone, especially if they're like newly competitive and not shooting like 72, let's say they're having a hard time breaking 80. With those kind of players, it's very easy to see like where they're probably losing the most strokes. So basic things that I like to know, first off, I don't care who you are. I always want to know what strokes gain putting is. And strokes gain putting is so easy to calculate. All you need to know is distance from the hole and how many putts it took you. Um, the other stats, trying to figure out your tee shot stats, approach stats, short game stats. Those, those could be a little bit more complicated and more, more complex as far as like what you would want to know. Um, all I would want to know if I was a, a beginner player is how many fairways did I hit and did I have a pattern for the ones I missed, which all you have to do would be put an arrow right or left. I like to know on my approach shots, buckets of yardage or windows of yardage. So like 50 to 100 yards, I hit four out of five greens or zero out of five greens. Um, and scrambling on pitch shots, chip shots, and bunker shots. Like, what was my up and down percentage? And if I have those things, then I can I can lean into like this lowest hanging fruit idea, where I'm just going to try over the next week or two, or at a lesson, fix like my two or three worst things. Is that going to be easy to track over periods and periods of time? No, but from one event to be able to take that data and start creating some type of training plan. Yeah, you could probably do that. Is that super advanced? No. Does that take a little bit of effort? Yeah, not much. Um, but that would be a starting point I would generally recommend if someone's doing like nothing. I would say it's very kindergarten elementary level statistics. But I think the important thing is maybe just starting the discipline of thinking about 
stats and thinking about grouping like i imagine that you probably have conversations or maybe texts from players who are like oh i played horrible and then no and that's everyone it, right? i teach is good <laughs> <laughs> right but then yes. like you're trying to peel back the onion right and you're, you're probably having to like pull this information out from them to figure out exactly what went wrong but i would imagine it'd be a much more uh, efficient conversation of like I didn't play. I didn't play great today, and this was the culprit, right? I had, like you said, zero out of five greens of regulation from fifty to hundred yards, or whatever the case may be. Like yeah. starting that dialogue and having that dialogue between coach and player, and speaking in statistical terms, can aid in their development, make just speed up the process of figuring out what to work on. You know, it is a weird. It's a weird thing because across the board, even from like some of the professionals all the way down to good high school players, it's just like pulling teeth to get people to get stats. So when you, when you said discipline, I think the thing is, is like stats aren't even necessarily for the player, right? If you have a coach, you're doing that coach to a degree of disservice when you don't give them any data, because one, they're not watching you play. Like how on earth are they going to know the detail of your performance, especially if you're a good player? And then secondly, you're not going to do a good job of necessarily as the player of being able to verbalize over a 36, 54, 70 hole, 72 hole event, because you're going to probably focus some bias towards your driving or you'll say, oh, I potted fine or something like that. So it's, it's not objective enough and it's just not, it's just not helpful. So it, it, I wish I could almost like in school, like you, it has to be a part of your routine it has to be part of your discipline just like like almost like part of a job because it really is a habit that even if you don't see the value every player would benefit from you have to have a deeply rooted belief that is going to help and i think even if it saved you one stroke over the course of the year it would have been it would have been beneficial and worthwhile let me talk a little bit about what we do on our end because it's maybe the opposite end of the spectrum but it's not to say that anybody couldn't you know put this into place if they if they thought sure and i think it's when you get more and more advanced the the low hanging fruit becomes a little bit higher and higher like tougher to achieve right so you're you're you know getting from perhaps like a 78 scoring average to a 77 is more than likely like speed putting drills or something like that just avoiding three putts that that could get you there pretty quickly um, but getting from 72 to 71 and a half or 71 and a half to 71, that, that's much tougher. And it might not be as apparent where that lowest hanging fruit is. You mentioned strokes gain information. I think that's critically important in all of this because I think managing expectations uh, around that and just knowing what the PJ Tour average is, I think is helpful in these conversations. Like sure. I imagine, you know, somebody say, oh, I missed... I missed two 10 footers in a row. Well, there's actually a pretty decent chance you're going to miss ten, two 10 footers in a row. Right. And if it causes you to question like, Oh, my putting stroke is off. Exactly. Well, it's like, maybe, uh, maybe that's just, it's a, like an eight footer is like a roll of the die or a flip of the coin. Right. 50, 50 baby. Uh, and there's going to be chances where there, God forbid you might miss three in a row 12% of the time. Right. That's just the odds of it. Um, so in any case, like understanding, the variance and volatility in those things relative to the tour average is helpful. So uh, what I've done with Luke and I've worked with a couple other juniors as well is helping them track their stats 
but it's all kind of deeply rooted in these PJ tour numbers. So there's a lot of resources. If you go on the stats page, they track all sorts of stuff, right? Proximity to the hole from different distances in fairway or rough, rough. you know, strokes gained at different distances around the green and from different yardages in the fairway, you know, the putting, the make rates at different, you know, eight to 10 feet, 10 to 15 feet, et cetera, et cetera. And we were able to construct this report, which basically I have a benchmark for it's close to 130 different statistical measures for Luke. We look at 10 round rolling tournament averages. So you have enough sample size to know that this is like a trend, right? And we look at the last 10 rounds relative to a benchmark. And the benchmark we have, we initially started as like PGA Tour average, uh, but I've since migrated him to the average of a PGA Tour player ranked, I think, 21 through 60. So like above average PGA Tour player. So it's a little bit of like a stretch goal in a number of these different categories. And the biggest thing, uh, and probably the most critical thing uh, of this is this concept of, yeah, you may have a gap in a certain category, say it's uh, bunker shots from 25 to 50 yards. And you might have a very significant gap between you and a PJ tour average, say your sand save percentage is 10%. And the PJ tour average is 50%. So there's a 40% gap there. But that shot may not come up very often in a round, right? It may come up like once every other round. So for each one of these categories, we calculate if there is a gap between where we are at over these last 10 rounds and this PGA Tour benchmark. But more importantly, the frequency in terms of how many times does it come up on average. So you have this gap times the frequency becomes the opportunity. So you may have a small gap on, say, five you know, five foot putts, but you might have five of those around. So that could turn out to be, you know, half a stroke of difference or four tenths of a stroke difference. That that may be a significant item uh, to work on versus some obscure shot, you know, 230 yard fairway shots or something like that may only come up once around, you know, it may not cost you that much in the end. So it's really meant to be a way to uh, focus practice time, figure out what the lowest hanging fruit is, you know, like I said, we said last episode, Luke was playing multiple sports. And a lot of this originated from just absolutely needing to make efficient use of his practice time. So being able to sort out, you know, what the lowest hanging fruit is, and having dialogue with you in terms of these are the things I need to work on in my lesson. These are the things I need to work on in between lessons, and just attacking it. So we really anything when you get to this a certain level, like anything that's worth like a quarter of a stroke or more, I think it's at least pursuing, you know, uh, perhaps a drill or some, you know, some resource or whatever to try to attack that. And then just continuing to monitor, monitor how that's going and whether or not the drill is working and whether or not uh, these trends are improving over time. It's genius. I mean, it's, it is, as Luke has gotten better or as players get better, it really does become much more difficult uh, when they show up to a session to say, okay, well, what are we going to, what are we going to work on today? Because as a coach, you just feel very unprepared, especially when you have a player that's as good as Luke, because you feel like you're doing them a disservice because you don't have a plan. And I think having that plan, uh, not only as the coach, but just as the player, it can only lead to making faster improvement. 
you may luck into practicing the right things a majority of the time, but if someone else is doing that, they're probably going to get there faster. Yeah. And I also think it's, it can be validation that the hard work is paying off, right? Cause sure. maybe in the moment, you know, they may not like, you may give them feedback in terms of a drill to work on and like they're likely to do it or try it. And, but it, they'll fully buy in if they see that it's paid off in the results and it, it all stemmed from the statistical analysis. Like maybe you never would have got to that point if you didn't have the stats helping to drive that dialogue and drive that decision. And I think once you start seeing results, then you can really double down on it, like in terms of your belief, uh, your belief in it. So it's really meant to be a guide and an aid. You know, I think it needs, you do need to balance this sort of discussion in terms of like, what was your takeaway, like in the moment playing in the tournament? And then if it's also supported by like, this is what the stats are saying as well. I think that helps having a meaningful conversation with you in terms of like, okay, what do we want to attack next? Like what's the lowest hanging fruit and how do I help get myself? How do I help improve on these things between now and whenever my next uh, tournament is? You know, it made me think about when I said earlier, like I like for everyone to check their strokes gain putting. It made me think about when a player comes to a lesson and says, okay, what do you want to do today? And they're like, I want to work on putting. (laughs) It's like the vastness of working on putting. I mean, honestly, you could work on putting for hours because there are so many aspects of it that you would have to check the box on. And so even if a player was calculating their strokes gain, just to give some depth to what you're saying, all you're going to get is a number plus or minus relative to average. So minus two or plus two, that still doesn't give any detail as to like, well, okay, where would I go from there? Other than I just need to practice putting more. Whereas if you knew your make percentage from six to 10 feet was a certain number and your benchmark was this, now, you know, at least I should be focusing in on this area. So that goes back to, yeah, that's a good starting point just to be able to know like, Hey, I was minus four strokes game putting. If that's the case, you probably need to practice all of your putting. Um, But when you're talking about fractions, like I lost half a shot over an event, you know, that, that can be very, very difficult to find. Like, okay, where is that half a shot on the putting green? Just as an example, anybody wants some more information on this, like we publish this information freely. So Luke's Instagram handle is at Luke Colton 22. And on his profile page, there's a link that has a Google doc that has basically has all his stats going back the last three years. And sort of the, you can see the evolution of these stats and all of the, all of the information and the tour benchmarks that we look at. Anybody could just copy and paste that and use that as a template. Like that's the reason why we throw it out there is just for anybody's benefit. It also shows exactly these like top 10 kind of low hanging fruit items that he's working on. We've got no problem like, like showing that and displaying it and just showing like, Hey, this is how we're, we're tackling it. Like we're, I, I firmly believe in, in terms of helping the game push forward. I'm, I want to help everybody, even, even my son's most bitter rivals. I don't know if he has any bitter rivals, but just like people he's competing <laughs> against week in and week out in these tournaments. I, we would be perfectly fine if they use this information to help themselves get better. I'm a huge believer in this, like uh, high tide raises all boats or whatever the same may be. I think just pushing uh, juniors and helping them, giving them the resources to get better only means more opportunities and improvement for, for just about everybody. But just one example, I'm just looking at his report for uh, full year 2023 from 10 to 15 feet on putting 
on average, he's 0.11 strokes below the tour average. And the benchmark in terms of this at above average tour golfer is 0.03. And so there's a gap there, 0.14. And that that putt on average happens 3.4 times around. So that gap 0.14 times 3.4 is 0.48 strokes improvement. So if he was able to close that gap to turn a negative into a positive, and it happens three, nearly three and a half times around, that's basically half a stroke off his scoring average. So that's like maybe the fifth or sixth item that's on his list. So it's just having, being armed with that information, like you said. Yeah, giving oh, wanna, attention to it, right? I, mean, I want to work on my putting. Yeah, because I think He's in the past. He's been doing a drill. He was, I saw him today. He was doing a drill uh, after our lesson for like an hour on the drill I gave him that is, is supporting trying to fix that as best as we can. Yeah, like a year ago, it was the four to eight footers, right? And his three putt rate was, you know, on, especially on lag putts was much, much higher than tour average. And I believe he, this year he's basically at tour average. And I think it's as a result of working on these four and five footers, he's been really, really solid at that make rate. But I think it's maybe come at the, like once he's tackled that hurdle, he's maybe hasn't focused on the mid range, yeah. the mid range sure. putts and making more birdies as a result of these 10 to 15 footers. like. Uh, like, like we have a saying, like MB Park, like we're trying to get to MB Park level, um, who I think is probably the best 15 foot For putter sure. in, in the world. You know, that's, that's sort of the goal is to keep attacking these different things and, and seeing the scoring average go down as, as a result. And who wouldn't want that, right? For sure. The only thing I'll add to that is I, when people say that they have like routines, like that they just do the same thing every day, I always think there's no way that they do stats then. Because why would someone do the same, unless you have all day, unless you have eight to 10 hours, there's no way to touch on everything that you need to touch on. You really wouldn't want to do routines. You'd want to, you'd want to diversify your practice from day to day or week, probably not day to day, but week to week to touch on the things that you're seeing are the main problems. And hopefully those things are changing because you're solving them. And then just like with Luke, like as one thing improves, maybe something loses a little bit just because it didn't have as much attention. So um, I see that as a good thing when someone's like, yeah, I have a very diverse practice schedule. I don't really do the same thing every day because it seems like it's constantly changing based on my performance. Okay. Well, I definitely appreciate your perspective. I'm glad you're on board because I know I, I probably threw <laughs> a, lot, a lot of these, a lot of these stats uh, at you, but it's good like stuff. I said, it's, it's helped with the dialogue in terms of uh, helping with the, you know, the, the player parent, uh coach dynamic. But yeah, like I said, if anybody wants more resources or has any questions, you can reach out to Andrew Lewis Golf on Instagram or Driven Golf Analytics. There's some resources on there on Instagram. Ask a question. We can cover it, potentially cover it in a future episode. Also, if you're on, a, if you're on Spotify, there's a Q&A where you can interact and just ask questions for, for Andrew and we can hopefully address it in a future episode. So I appreciate your perspective, Andrew, and we'll talk yeah, to you Yeah, for sure. That was awesome. Thanks. The Driven Golf Podcast is produced by Joseph K. If you like this episode, like it, subscribe, pass it on to a friend who might be interested. It really helps us out a lot. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode. Until then, remember, in this great game, the journey is the gift. Enjoy the journey.